Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson and I'm the founder of Stack, the service that searches out the best independent magazines and delivers a different one to your door every month. Now, I'm calling this episode special basically because there aren't any others. Uh, It's a one-off conversation recorded live at an event that I helped to organise in San Francisco at the start of this month, uh, November 2022. I'd been invited over there by a design studio called Landscape, who have started running a lovely, homely pop-up event space called Dog. It's in the middle of a quiet residential neighbourhood and over the weekend we welcome loads of people in to browse through magazines and on the Saturday night we put on a panel discussion with Anya Charbonneau from Broccoli, Victor Gonzalez from Gross and Michael Ray from Zoetrope. They're all based along the west coast of the US and it was wonderful to bring them together and to see Michael again and to meet Anya and Victor in person for the first time. Of course, it helps that they're also funny, clever, generous people who are happy to speak about the strange realities of publishing an independent magazine. And I loved hearing all their stories. It was a great night and it deserves to be heard by way more people than we could pack into the room at Dog. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Broccoli, Gross and Zoetrope. Thanks so much for uh, for coming over. Uh, I flew in on Thursday night, <clears throat> and I was feeling much more weird than this this time yesterday. So we should have done this yesterday. It would have been really funny watching my brain implode. Um, so uh, my name is Steve, uh, and I run a service called Stack, uh, which sends out a different independent magazine every month. Um, I'd just like to say thank you really quickly to uh, Hannah and. Ben and everybody else uh, at Landscape for putting this on. Uh, like, quick show of hands, how many people here like just live around the corner from this place? It's, like, it's been so nice today, just like people coming in going like, is this a house? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's like it's really lovely to uh, to have this just sort of pop up in the middle of someone's neighbourhood. Um, okay, so we're going to talk um, tonight about three very different magazines. Um, Hopefully you've had a chance to take a look at some of them today. Um, I think we're going to explore some of those differences and I think we're going to find some similarities too. I have some hypotheses that I'm going to test through the conversation. We'll see. We'll see how wrong I am. Um, But so first of all, um, I would like you guys to all just introduce yourselves and what you do um, and tell us a bit about your magazines. Hi everybody, thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Anya Charbonneau and I'm the founder of a company called Broccoli and that's also the title of the first magazine that we started publishing. Um, Broccoli is a magazine for cannabis lovers and since then, we started five years ago, we now make a whole bunch of mushroom related stuff and art books, which are the snail world is sitting over there. And now we're kind of like a publisher rather than just a magazine, but it's not easy to describe in one sentence. Um, yeah, we do a lot of unusual delights, is what we like to call it. Nice. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. Also, thanks for coming. Who's <laughs> <laughs> I think, do I need to scoot forward? Okay. Uh, let's see if this works. Okay, cool. 
Um, my name is Victor Gonzalez, and I am the founder and editor-in-chief of Gross Magazine. Kind of similar to what uh, Anya just said, like, started about seven years ago, and it's grown into a couple different titles, and uh, the business itself has uh, encompasses a couple of other things. It's basically all surrounding global creative culture. Um, all kinds of artists and, and their different disciplines, everything from culinary arts to visual artists, mostly heavily visual artists because it's a very visual platform. But uh, yeah, been publishing this for a while. Um, our magazines have um, embedded stickers, so it's like very interactive and kind of a way to participate with the content that you're, uh, that you're reading. Thanks, Victor. Uh, so my name is Michael Ray. Um, I fear that some of the things I'm going to say are going to be redundant to many of you because I feel like I've spoken to everybody here. Um, and thanks so much for coming. So I edit a magazine called Zootrip All Story. We're based in San Francisco in North Beach. Um, and the other half of my staff is right over here, who's also my wife, Anne. Um, so we've really predicated our family's financial future on the totally stable ship of art magazines. Um, so uh, the magazine's published by Francis Ford Coppola. It, it was founded in 1997. Um, I've been the editor since 2002, so I had my 20th anniversary in April, which in a town where people stay in jobs for three months, I think is an unusual thing. Um, and I've stayed with it for so long because it's, it's, it's a, it's a constantly enriching project to me. So um, it's all short fiction, um, which we uh, focus on short fiction because Francis feels that uh, short fiction is the art form most akin to film because you um, sort of pass each in one sitting. Um, and to manifest the collaborative nature of filmmaking, we have a different artist design every issue. So we have... We've um, worked with uh, musicians like David Bowie and... Um, Tom Waits and architects and filmmakers and photographers and painters and actors um, and we have no money to we run it really leanly we have no money to pay these people we just send them some wine at the end of the, of the, um, the collaboration um, but it's the f what we offer them is, is creative freedom and creative freedom with with financial constraints of a small magazine's budget and it's really um, kind of endlessly inspiring to me that all these artists, sort of new and established, find that to be like uh, something they want to spend their time doing. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's 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 who we are. It's a really weird thing speaking with Michael. They just gets normal that he like is doing things like Tom Waits and like you know all these superstars. You just like nod along and like yeah, yeah of course yeah yeah. How do you end? How do you start doing that? Like, the, like, were you just kind of walking down the street one day and Francis Ford Coppola like pulled you into a room and said, "Make me a magazine." How do you do that? <laughs> well, um, I that is sort of how the magazine started, although um, not with me. So the magazine started in 1997 in New York, and there was a woman named Adrienne Brodeur um, who was an editor in New York and wrote Francis. I think it may, may have even been a letter about how he'd said something about this idea of short fiction being the art form most akin to film. And she wrote him a letter saying, you know, I found that, I totally agree. And her, her um, she was uh, an editor at The New Yorker at the time, I totally agree, and I wanna, um, you know, I, I've been thinking about starting a short fiction magazine. I think she was looking for advice or something. And um, Francis is a guy who gets sort of ideas um, we call his his the period every night from like midnight to three a.m. the crazy idea department because he'll send 
like, how about this idea? And you can look at the timestamp, and if it's between those hours, it's um, one of his crazy ideas. And so he called her, I think, at like midnight, just out of the blue, sort of like months later, and saying, I, I wanted to do a magazine like this too, and let's do it. Um, so the magazine was in New York for about four years, and then it won the National Magazine Award for Fiction as the best literary magazine in the country. Francis wanted to move it to the West Coast. Um, so this was in 2002, and um, I, at the time, had been writing for different magazines out here and was uh, looking to move to New York, um, which I said to somebody here before, but is true, basically because I wanted dental insurance. Um, and figured I'd join a staff there, and so I wrote a bunch of editors I knew there. Um, and uh, the founding editor, Adrian, was one of them because I'd submitted a couple things to the magazine that they hadn't acquired, but we'd been in contact about them. And so she said, um, you know, he's, he's moving, the, Francis is moving the magazine to San Francisco. If you're interested uh, in joining the staff, contact this person. So I contacted that person who told me to come to the cafe in North Beach for at like noon for a meeting and I showed up and it was Francis. And we ended up talking for like three hours, nothing to do with magazines. I had very little experience, like very, almost zero editorial experience. And at the end, he said, um, do you have any interest in films? And I said, you know, not to make them, because everyone I knew in LA hated their lives um, <laughs> making films. But it, as a, yeah, I like, you know, I like films, and that, that seemed to be the right answer. And um, like within two days, they'd offered me the job, and I just sort of had to intuit my way into it, because I didn't know how to do any of this. And um, yeah, 20 years, he hadn't fired me yet. So the, the like the not knowing what you're doing thing is uh, a bit of a theme that runs through independent magazines. People, you know, you, you start with more kind of willing than expertise often. But Anya, that's not the case for you. Uh, yeah, I worked for a magazine, um, Kinfolk, before starting my own. But during the time there, we, it was a small team, so we had a really close insight into how everything was running and the business and choices being made for the business and I was like I will never do this <laughs> like this is too hard it's you know the margins are small and distribution is challenging and there's all of these different challenges that come with it and with Kinfolk it felt like very like the right moment for the right type of magazine and it spun off a lot of other independent magazines because it was so successful and like kind of came up at the same time that everyone started using Instagram and like there was just a moment around it um, and it was really, really cool to see the impact that it had by all of these other independent magazines coming up after that. But I was like, I'll never do it. It's too hard. It's fun to do, but like a little intimidating. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, then you do it anyway because it's so fun. <laughs> so, oh, come on, you've a bit more detail now. So what, what happened to make you go, actually, no, I am going to make a magazine? Well, I was like forgetting what the t exact timeline was, but um, it was in 20... Around 2016, I was kind of ready to leave my job and decided to start working on this on Broccoli, which is the cannabis magazine um, in Oregon. It was just had just become adult use legal, and the dispensaries were like starting to get stylish, and there were brands starting to care about their design and packaging and being more thoughtful about the presentation. You know, really inviting people in that either liked weed before and finally got to buy it easily, or maybe first timers that just making it friendly and, and interesting. And you go in the stores and it was still the same industry magazine. So unless you were working in the cannabis industry and cared about like extraction technology and growing, you, you wouldn't know if you were just a person who maybe casually liked to smoke weed sometimes. 
Um, so I was like, ah, the opportunity. <laughs> like it was, it was just clear that it, it might be something that people would be into because there wasn't. And at the time, we were like, oh, we can bring like a more like female perspective as well because we have had an all woman team at that point. And yeah, it just kind of blew up because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people were waiting to be spoken to in that community. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful that I had that experience because I think I was able to make decisions along the way that it was still a huge learning curve. <laughs> it still is a learning curve, but it helped a little bit to have that context. And so like obviously, as well as there were people waiting to respond to, there were also brands who wanted to uh, identify themselves with the right yeah. type of wheat. So, did, yeah. I mean, where did, did you take advertising right from Absolutely, the Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we started as a free magazine, so we really wanted people to be able to access it really easily and send it all over the place. And for something that's kind of, you know, it was still kind of controversial in 2017, um, we didn't want to put a big price tag on it because that might just be the barrier that kept people away. So we're like, let's make it free. We would send it to stores for free. People could get it there and just go and pick it up. Or if you've got it online, we, they would pay for shipping. And so from the beginning, we were like, great, it's advertising, we'll pay for it. Because, because weed isn't federally legal, you can't advertise in most platforms. Like digital platforms, you can't. Um, anything controlled by Facebook, you can't. So we were like, ooh, we've got, we've got an opportunity here to like do something that they would be proud to put their brand in. And that has helped a lot. It's not advertising isn't enough to like sustain a business in publishing I don't think I don't think well maybe some types of publishing but not ours <laughs> so we have other things going on too but it's it advertising has been a big part of it mm -hmm. um, and it's actually really cool because the brands really try to put their best foot forward with the design and like I think they take they really take their time to make it fit as seamlessly as possible which isn't always the case mm -hmm. um, and people are like oh like what do you tell the advertisers I'm like they don't we don't tell them anything. They just look and they get it. And it's nice to have that kind of relationship mm. and sort of help each other normalize weed at the same time. Mm. So mm. it's kind of a cool, there's like a mutual thing going on. And so, Michael, I know there's, there's advertising in Zoetrope, but it's kind of in-house advertising, right? Yeah, we, it's, um, I mean, like, you know, anyone who's ever tried to sell advertising to anything that, or, where a magazine has no products in it, like there's, it, it does not translate to an advertiser's mindset. So we, we had advertised, like Mark Jacobs had been a long time advertiser and Kate Spade, and we would, the way that we, are people interested in, you guys interested in sort of how small enterprises advertise? It, it is an interesting field. But basically, like what we would do is we would go out to, um, you know, try to find somebody, never go through an agency because they don't know how to understand you. And we would try to find somebody on staff who was like interested in, in the filmmakers and the, and the different artists we were working with and then say, look, you know, you can get an ad in the magazine for like 5,000 bucks that you will blow on, you know, booze for your next party and associate with all these, um, with these artists and then also like it's a it's like a uh, you can support this cool product and we can send you free mags like to put in your next events and so we had to find very much like back ways and individuals into these companies the hard thing was that like once those people would move on there's not as much of an institutional connection and so somebody leaves that job and then you're trying to convince like the next person there um, 
but uh, but like Anya was saying, I think like you do need to do like so many other things. So like you know we teach uh, writing workshops. Um, we do. We used to do um, uh, writing workshops at uh, Francis has a couple of properties in Belize, and so we were doing like writing and screenwriting workshops there. Um, uh, and we do um, like con yeah, so we run like a short fiction competition, a screenwriting competition. But um, sometimes I feel like we're a we're a competition company that also produces a magazine on the side. <laughs> but you need to find like you, it's, it is sort of a constant hustle. But I think when you believe in what you're doing, you just, you find ways to make it work. Yeah, Victor, tell us about the hustle. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, so, you know, like, I think, just generally speaking, between these two people next to me, like, you know, they produce these amazing, these publications, and, um, you know, getting started in this world, it's like knowing that there's no rubric, right? There's, there's sure, there's like, you can see how someone else has done it, or you can see, like, they can make a guide, but no matter what, that guide's never gonna really apply to like what you're doing specifically, how you're doing it, and who you're doing it for. So there's always gonna be this really bespoke approach that's constantly gonna have to evolve, because no matter what, it's always a moving target. Who, how you're gonna capture attention, how you're gonna keep these people's attention, whether it's like the readers or brands that you wanna work with. So I don't really have much to say in terms of advertising because in in Gross Magazine we actually fight pretty hard to not have any ads in there. Um, it's it's a it's almost like a, like I'm jumping on the sword here, but at, at at the same time it's because like knowing like high performing creatives are very very astute and they know when they're being advertised to. At least that's something that you know I've agreed with a bunch of people, my contemporaries, and I know that like. Having having an ad that runs like for a while, I was like really hoping to get some like great you know ad campaigns on these big brands and like wow that would just be solve all the problems. But it would essentially like there's this scale of um, how do you balance, and I think there's something you've done really well with broccoli. But how do you balance the the like brand equity that you're building uh, with with not necessarily diluting the content. Like that's the last thing you want to do is dilute it, right? With having like something that's interrupting a story or something that's kind of just jarring is like it sticks out, like it doesn't fit. So I think the way that you approach your advertisers or your adver the way that you work with them is great because it, it feels very synonymous with the content that you're creating. Um, with, with the way that we produce these magazines, it's, it's kind of like a little bit of a badge of honor, although I'm like kind of crying inside every day of like, we don't have any ads. And it's, it's you know, it's something that's great. And I, there's a lot of respect there, but that's also why, you know, what you said is you started with Broccoli Magazine, but that's evolved into, you're like a publisher. You're creating like different titles and books and like kind of um, looking at broadening your landscape and how you can do more of what you want to do without having to rely on the ads, right? And so, you know, same kind of similarly, like, this network that's surrounding Gross Magazine, you know, the year after we launched this this title, um, I don't know if it's ambition or some masochism, but we started a second title, and that was like a great program. And so, like the uh, that one's called Relish Magazine, by the way. Uh, it's a traveling art program. It's very destination specific, so totally different model. But they both foster this this um, amazing artist community and so by way of those networks and those communities and those connections like lever leveraging those brands and those networks like I've we've been able to 
have some like collaborations and partnerships with brands versus having content that's like supplied and then printed within the magazine. So it's yeah, it's it's such a like no matter what every every approach is going to have to be tailored to specifically what that brand is. And so so sticking with uh, with gross one of the things that I think kind of unifies the magazines is kind of making life hard for yourselves. So, so gross, and you sort of like, you, you mentioned this quickly at the start, you have these stickers placed through the magazine, but I don't think that kind of really does it justice. So, so what they have for anyone who hasn't seen the magazine is these stickers, which are, first of all, there's like a, a patch of like spot gloss that's printed on the page. So then a sticker can be hand placed on the spot gloss. So there's there's no spot gloss, but it's a it's a dual release label. It's very technical speak for like essentially it's a sticker that has two layers of like of sticky, right? So you can stick it on and then you can peel that out and it's still sticky so you can stick it elsewhere. But the release layer is clear so you can see what's printed beneath that sticker. So essentially like every time you peel a sticker out, it's uh it's like a little easter egg hunt. Like you get to see new content, you know, alternate artworks uh, sometimes they're like blatantly put in the middle of a large block quote so you can't read it so you have to peel the sticker out to read that block quote so it just like it invites um, interaction on a way on a scale that like I just that's part of like the driver of making this thing was like I wanted to make a magazine um, to like build some type of community around you know things that I value as well like creativity and innovation um, but to do it in some type of way that's like a little bit different or somehow unique and um, I guess yeah it's it's a it's about making life hard <laughs> <laughs> but with a real reward I mean like yeah. it turns into this beautiful little exercise in like first of all finding them because they don't always make themselves apparent yeah so the first the first issue uh, actually had a had kind of a rude awakening that like I talked to a bunch of people that had gotten the magazine and I was like, oh, what'd you think? And the first issue we had it like vacuum sealed is like this whole packaging experience. And a lot of people I talked to were like, oh, I never opened it. Cause it's like, <laughs> it's like perfectly immaculately packaged. And I'm like, oh my God, okay. So then my next tagline was like, okay, real collectors buy two, you know, it's like sell more magazines. Um, and that yeah, worked to an extent. But uh, then like also, you know, there's people that opened them and they're like, oh, it's so cool. I'm like, what'd you think of like the stickers? Like there's stickers in there? I'm like, oh my God. So, so then, you know, now moving forward after that, every magazine, you know, has um, a sticker on the, like the first page and now like in bold type or so, like some actually like an arrow pointing to the sticker. It's like, this is a sticker, peel this out. And then like, once you get people to, like see that, then they're like, oh, there's stickers in it. These are stickers. Like every page they're opening, they're like touching the images to see if it's a sticker. So it's like, it like, it really begs, it, it, it invites you to like, like look try to like you know look very closely at everything you're you're witnessing within the magazine so if anyone here hasn't already seen it at the end you have to go and have a look over there because you, you need to see it to believe you yeah. gotta touch every page oh. did we get too close you gotta touch every page yes and <laughs> yes. um, so so anya so so stickers uh, uh the thing for gross that's kind of like you know sort of like what the magazine's known for when I think of the visuals in Broccoli, I think of like the lovely kind of like trippy graphics that, that you have an issue. How did you come to that and how soon did you come to that? Was that something that was there in Broccoli right at the start? Yeah, I think so. I think that was a pretty like 
we wanted to have that walk that line between like beautiful and weird and I think you know thinking of the ideal drug experience for me would be like a very beautiful nature experience where you feel like you're being sucked into it and you get to experience something that's a little more otherworldly um, we definitely had bigger fantasies about kind of like what you're doing where there's super special exciting treatments and everything but we just couldn't afford it I mean it's it's kind of nuts but one of the magazines that really inspired me um, doing research. There was a magazine published in the year of 1950 each month called Flair, uh, like F-L-A-I-R. Um, and this just crazy socialite published it and she had the most incredible connections to every famous designer and actor and royalty and all this, all this crazy stuff. But she did really experimental stuff like little windows that you would open different cutouts. Um, there was a whole rose issue that was all scented, like rose, every paper, all the paper was rose scented. Cutouts, like gold ink, and like sh it didn't make any money. It lost a, a tremendous <laughs> amount of money. And they got made fun of a lot in other newspapers. They were like the, the Vogue, uh, the Vogue for weirdos. And so they were always editorialized in the normal papers, like, oh, there's like papers just falling out of it. And it was, it's very inspiring and I still kind of aspire to that. <laughs> um, but we do what we can with like a normal page. And um, we decided pretty, I guess by the second issue to not do exactly the same designs each time. So we do have a pretty solid like front of book, which is your smaller articles in the beginning, like middle of book, your longer articles, and then kind of a bookend of smaller pieces at the end. So that format has remained the same, but the designs, and especially in the middle and the back, change every time, which is like our way to keep it fun and different and not get bored, but also make other things to not get bored. Hey. I can't get close to that either way. I thought I should go and stand in the street outside. But, um, and so, but, but so those graphics are strong enough and distinctive enough that then that's allowed you to do other stuff. So. Like I'm thinking of uh, the book, uh, Weed is a Flower. The, so basically being able to take editorials out of the magazine and then turn that into its own thing just to, to stand on its own. Yeah, I mean, our, our first issue with, uh, the first issue of Broccoli had these Ikebana flower arrangements, like the Japanese style of flower arranging with uh, hemp in it, and which I don't think had ever been done before. And people really, really connected to it because it was showing the cannabis plant in the context of a flower arrangement in a way that just like, they're like, oh, it's just a plant, like it's beautiful. It's just can be, it doesn't have to be corny. It's like, it can be really beautiful and special. And so I think a lot of people really connected to that. And because I love plants and flowers so much, it's been a constant theme that we keep exploring. So once we had enough of that, we were like, could we do a whole book? Like, could we do a photo book and, you know, commission a few more uh, photo essays and put together a hardcover book um, called A Weed is a Flower, and it's all of the weed and flower arrangement things that kind of go from the natural interpretations to much more surreal and trippy, like painted plants. And uh, one artist that we work with, she was doing these digital, she was printing digital transfer paper and then transferring it onto leaves of tropical plants and like peeling it off. So it's like plants with this really crazy printed stuff on it. Um, so it was really fun to ask some of our favorite collaborators to like interpret this theme and make this one big packaged thing. So, so I mean, so that's one way that I'm just really like I'm really anticipating. Right? <laughs> I know. So, so that's that's one way that you get to kind of uh, establish an identity for the magazine, I guess. And, and also, as you say, like you have the structure 
where you have like the front of Burke and then like sort of like the, the main section in the middle. Michael, you don't have anything like that. Like the, the whole point of Zoetrope is that every issue you start completely from scratch. The identity is completely different every time. The physical production is different every time. I mean, you know, I talked about making things difficult for yourself. Like that sounds like that's a bit of a nightmare. Well, um, I think like the f doing uh, short fiction, the nice thing is that it, it, it we, don't, we can get, it makes sense to get out of the structure of a normal magazine with like a front of book and well and all that. Um, and I think also people being able, like the, the difficult thing for our magazine for many years was, uh, and this may have been before you guys time, but like when you had to deal, you, the way to reach people was through the newsstand. And you, you know, people weren't really buying magazines online. Um, the way that newsstands would work, or magazine stands, is that they wanted, you know, a standard format um, because they had to like sort of maximize real estate. And so, like when we were sending these things out there, that were every issue is a different dimension, and sometimes it's you know landscape and it's 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 portrait and then it's it's small and it's big and we were doing all newsprint for a while that would be folded um there were newsstands that like did not want to carry us at all and so um and i think like with both of your um imprints like the ways that you've been able to be so inventive um is in part because you can reach i would imagine because you can reach your audience directly that like you don't have to like work through this channel that forces you to sort of standardize everything. Um, I mean, that's kind of the preferred method, yeah. honestly, um, outside of Stack, of course. But, you know, it's <laughs> having, having like, you know, especially we talked about publishing is not exactly, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's like, you know, slim margins. It's, it's, a, it's a distribution is a battle, I mean, to get people's attention, to hold their attention, and then, you know, convince them to, to acquire these things, right? When there's so much digital content that, like, some people just don't get it and they're a bit detached and you know I think that's also a product of like our time now but um, yeah having you know to remove the as, as many like middlemen as possible like distribution there's a couple distributors that I just got flat out like they like laughed at me like you don't have a hundred thousand copies circulating like no I'm like oh oh okay um, you know like it's tough but like then you can you know see what is seen as a weakness and turned into a strength, right? Like, like this is, it's so captivating because you have so many different styles. It's like, it's like, uh, it's tantalizing in every way. Okay, so um, I'm gonna um, ask for questions in a little bit. So please be like sort of thinking about what you wanna ask the, the panel. I have um, a question. <laughs> for you, actually, I was curious. I mean, got a microphone. Well, no, I was thinking about, I mean, like how, um, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, the, the magazines that you, because I feel like a magazine, the cool thing about a magazine, in San Francisco has long been a super zine culture, where like you can get not that much money together, and if you have an interesting idea, you can make a magazine, and it can be like this really unique um, sort of form of media, but most of them don't last. And I feel like, how do you find these magazines from all over the world doing like super unique, fascinating things? Um, and I think a lot of them, like, they probably don't have super long lifespans. Yeah, no, that's true, that's true. Well, I mean, I'm really helped by the fact that they send me a copy when they're... Oh, when they're <laughs> it, that, that bit's easier. Yeah. Um, no, but, the, I mean, look, it's, it's what I do, like, all the time. I'm, I'm always looking for new stuff, and 
you're right like the you know a lot of the magazines don't last for a really long time but i would say that like a, a lot of the like the really decent ones even if they're decent and don't last long you're gonna get like two or three issues mm -hmm. and so like the typical thing will be like we see the first one come out and that's really interesting and so start speaking to people we were just talking earlier about feels which is on the shelf there so that's their second issue and they haven't done a third yet they might not ever do a third because it like came out of this time when they were studying together at RISD but we managed to get the second mm -hmm. one and, and get that out so it, it's always about trying to make sure that you like that you jump onto something at just the right time I think um, so getting back to my unifying things yeah. so the so I think that one of the things that you could say about all three of your magazines is that they're really shaped by the place that they come out of. And this might just be like me, pale man sitting in London, a long <laughs> way away from here. But like all three of your magazines really seem to be a product of the place they come from. So, and so Anya, I mean, the, how important is it to you that broccoli is made in Portland? I feel, I mean, I guess I kind of don't think it is made in Portland because there's only two of us there. And like Ellen, who's sitting back there, who also makes Mildew Magazine, she's one of our editors from, she lives in Mexico City. She's from Portland, though, originally. But everyone I work with on like a regular basis on the magazine, we're all in different cities. So I don't necessarily feel like Portland is its home, but I think the home part of it is sort of the natural world. I mean, I'm surrounded by beautiful trees. It's funny you're joking about being pale from where I think we're, we're all in quite pale locations. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's rainy everywhere right now, but um, yeah, the, like, it's, it's the like nature. It's like burning in, in yeah, LA. Burning. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I think it's more for me about like the finding that nature and the natural world wherever you are and kind of expressing those things. Um, but and yeah, finding finding like the magic in the mm. the nature that you're surrounded well, by. I, I would actually jump into that. Um, I I do. I mean, our magazine was started in San, in uh, New York, but I do feel like um, it feels very much to me as San Francisco magazine because I think San Fran like a cool thing, and I'm sure a lot of people who work in the arts here would have experienced this. That the cool thing about San Francisco is like you you're not if you're outside of all these like sort of art industry centers like it's not the film industry in LA it's not the publishing industry in New York and it's not the music industry in like Nashville and <laughs> uh, other places but so I feel like the there's a lot of like artists who are here are here for a reason like for your career it would be better to be other places and it's a really difficult place to work as an artist um, but people are here for reasons and there's a lot of like collaboration I feel like my friends in LA, like there's a lot of people who work in film and they kind of see other film people are in New York and publishing. And here I feel like um, we have a lot of friends in the arts but doing totally different things. And, I, and that I think imbues our magazine certainly about like where I just look at it as this platform for collaboration where you can kind of approach anybody with this idea um, and learn like the different ways that people solve problems and think about their work and um, and uh, the other way that it, I think it informs our magazine is that we're publishing fiction. Um, most of the contributors do not live here. And I think in working in fiction, which is sort of what differentiates it from nonfiction, I think nonfiction can be sort of more about the subject matter where 
fiction, I think, is, is you know, sort of it's an art form. Uh, how to explain it? I, it's it. You need as an editor, you really need to develop trust with the writer. Um, that that person, that 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 all your only thoughts are about how to better the work, and you need to sort of attain some sort of synchronicity with that person, where you kind of understand what that person's trying to do with the work. And having living in San Francisco, where often you know you're not meeting these people in person, um, that's something that is really necessary to what I'm doing, like really upfront to try to like really build that trust. And it's happening like over email or the phone or, you know, mm -hmm. which has been a constant. Okay, so so there's a, a little bit of yes, a little bit of no in terms of the, the importance of place. Victor, where, where do you, because so many of the people featured in Gross are artists who are based in LA or, or like Southern California. Yeah, this, this last issue, um, you know, every issue we've, we've tried to kind of push the envelope, our own envelope in some way, right? Um, you know, the first one was we, we did a Kickstarter. We, we raised like 15K, which was definitely not enough. Didn't take into consideration any of the shipping costs, which is, you know, <laughs> hey, first magazine, right? Um, but, you know, that one was like a lot of sourced content, right? Just working with what I had, the, with what I had and what I could do, um, and you know, in, immensely small team it was like me and my you know original co-founder, one of my best friends, and and we just like were super ambitious. So we wanted to have like this global culture view on art and everything. And it was like so did a lot of interviews by email or some by text or by phone call or whatever. And it was like artists all over the place, Australia, Brazil, UK, like all over the US. And it's great, but it was also all sourced content, right? Not a, not a whole lot of original content. Um, in our first issue, we had a big release party here in, in San Francisco where uh, we were living at the time, and it was great. It had a really cool like SF community. It felt cool. It was, it was great, like very supportive and and very lively. Um, did that for a while, and but the thing is, the next issue we did a big release party out in Miami during uh, Miami Art Basel, which kind of then in turn became a tradition. We would publish towards the end of the year and do a release party in Miami. We've done, uh, I think, three of those now. So we kind of have this like Miami community that activates, but it's a very international community that's there during Miami Art Basel. So it's like, yes, it's Miami, but it's a very international community. It's more like industry community. Um, and now I'm living in LA and this, this last issue, I'm very proud of this one. We added more pages than any of our previous issues. and. Um, I think we created like original, like 90% of the content is all original. We produced a ton of the photo shoots. My lovely wife sitting over here, she's an amazing stylist and costume designer. She was, you know, she pulled so much really great wardrobe and like the whole thing just felt a lot more produced and we had a lot more time and it was a lot more professional, I guess you could say, right? Um, so, you know, LA is a great community that opened, that like open arm welcomed this magazine but so it's, it's a little bit of yes, but a little bit of no, because the scope of this magazine is really meant to be like global. Uh, there's some really great magazines I know, like, you know, in, in San Francisco and, and in LA, and they, you know, they have a really great grasp on the local art scene. And that's cool. I'm not trying to compete with them at all, because that's not what I'm trying to do. And I don't want to necessarily pigeonhole this magazine with a specific place, but it is really, like I always have in mind to not overlook a city 
or a community specifically as like, oh, well, this isn't global. It's like, you know, it's just another stop. It's not that at all. It's always like anytime we're doing an event or a release party or whatever it is, activation, it's really focusing on that community and treating that community like open ears, like what they like, what they want and like feed that as much as possible and empower it. Mm. Um, so it is, it's constantly different. You know, Miami attitudes are very different than LA and San Francisco or New York. And so like, you know, we just did an activation um, out in Paris during um, Art Basel Paris, which was amazing. And it was like a totally different style of group of people. Like, totally different. I had no idea what to expect, but it was also very much like, okay, I'm not trying to bring this, this, um, like attitude there. I'm just there to soak up and empower everything that is there already. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like have the infrastructure and then like they can add all the, the growth on top of it. So, so when you, when you've been working on an issue for like months uh, and like, you know, sort of slaving away, making this thing, you put the magazine out there, like, what are you looking for to tell you whether it's, worked or not do you, do you get a sense of like oh yeah this one hit the spot and then what is that yeah I think it's it's really and fortunately like being an independent publisher I've, I have you know big ambitious goals but also try to you know like have also like be grounded in reality you know but um, I think the biggest thing is like once I hand someone a magazine they've maybe never heard of it before and I put it in their hands and like I'm telling them about it as I put it in their hands, and then as soon as it lands, they're they just they're not listening to me anymore. They're just opening it, and they're like, "Wow, wow, wow!" And I'm like talking to them, and they're like, "Uh huh, uh huh." Like they like they forget. They like they're not listening anymore, which is great because like I can talk about this thing until I'm blue in the face. But like even the stickers thing, it's like okay, it's a pretty simple concept. There's stickers in there you can take out, but no, there's no other magazines that are doing that, and it becomes like like. I don't know, it's just sometimes it's hard for some people to grasp in a weird way, but yeah, like that's how I know that we did a good job, is that when people like grab it and they're just like enthralled with the experience, like we focus on the texture of the paper, like I've learned so much from my, my print account manager, he's like literally <laughs> taught me, he's like held my hand the entire way, um, like there's the grain of the paper, how it lays open, where it's like, you know, there's the weight and like the richness and matte versus the gloss and this and that, like all these different things, like really trying to fine tune the experience. And so when, when I see someone like just get lost in the experience of the magazine, I know we did a good job. And Anya and Michael, I'm interested to know as well from your point of view, like what is it when you put a magazine out that you feel you've done a, a good job or not a good job? Um, you know, it's, uh, there's one part of it, like with the content, I guess, so I'll talk about it from, from the content and from the design. Um, from the content, a lot of these stories go through some fairly drastic uh, editing during the process. And um, when I'm proofing at the end and I can't see any of the scenes, and when a writer reads the story and is like that, it feels like this was the inevitable shape of this story. That that's really f feels really good. And similarly, like with the designer, like where you know we approach these artists who sometimes have no ideas what they want to do. Like we were uh, so our summer twenty twenty one was Jim Jarmish last summer, and we've been after him for a while. 
And so he agreed to do this issue and he um, came to it like basically with no ideas and he just started to look through a bunch of old photographs he'd taken and found that he had a bunch of photographs like from the 80s with, that happened to have um, like old CRT like television screens in the back of them and he really liked, a lot of them were um, like the light that would come off the screen which looked sort of bluish and then the whole concept came out of that one idea um, where we kind of played up the, we ran these photos in black and white, played up the screen into a blue and then inverted it where you'd show the same photograph but like the room is blue and the screen is black and white and, and to see that idea sort of develop from nothing and then in the end he's like, yeah man, like this is, if I was gonna make a magazine, this is it. Um, I think that that also just feels like you're fulfilled. And the thing over the years is like, it's funny because like we'll have like an issue that's designed by, you know, like Iggy Pop or so on. And then one who's designed by an artist no one's ever heard of. I can't tell what's going to sell and what's not. And we'll like base our print orders like, oh, this guy, like everyone's going to be talking about this person and those things won't sell. And then other issues just sort of go. And I do not understand that at all. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's why like, you know, I think that maybe that's been a theme is like some of the things you're taking of like where it works is like on this somewhat personal level because like I think we work in these, we're such small parts of these markets that like, you know, like newsstands shut down and like our sales kind of remain the same. Like, it, you know, it's like we're small enough that the people who really want the magazine find it regardless, so. Yeah, I agree. Like with we we published a mushroom magazine, which there's no more copies here because people are going crazy for mushrooms. <laughs> and like we made it because we thought mushrooms were really interesting. And my ed other editor Stephanie, her kid got super super into mushrooms. He's he was 5 at the time, and I don't know a lot about foraging, but I have a few that I know how to do <laughs> safely. And it's just something that I found really interesting. So when we had this little mutual interest, we're like, what if we Maybe there's some ideas here because it does have a similarity to cannabis where like you can approach it from a lot of different lenses whether it's art or history or science or all the new stuff that's happening with each of those uh well, plant and mushroom you can't really categorize the mushroom anywhere else which makes it interesting but like seeing the way that people engage with the thing you've made like you're saying if they get just like lost in it or today was the first time i've seen anyone in real life that wasn't part of making mushroom people look at mushroom people and that was that's really exciting because you don't know what's going to resonate with people or like um, snail world the book that we put out with two artists who make these amazing snail dioramas uh, I'm just a huge fan of their work I think it's so fun so weird um, you know it's does nothing to do with weed and nothing to do with anything we've done it was the first book we put out and it came out in November of 2020 when everyone was very, very sad. So like seeing this little snail living a great life, going on vacation. I mean, there's some sadness in the I, book too. It's poignant I, I kind of beg to differ that it has nothing to do with weed though, because I feel there like that's, some that's, a, that's a great, that's a great, I think that's a product of maybe some cannabis. Uh, sort maybe, of and also if you look closely, there's the tiniest joint. Okay. Well, also, I found joint. that answer hugely clarifying, but when, cause when you're talking about mushroom people, I thought you were still talking about drugs. And so when you mentioned the five-year-old, too, I thought, wow, like, it's very precocious. Very, <laughs> very, very progressive. Um, yeah, like, and th that's the thing that's hard to define about what we're doing is that there's not always a drug involved and there's not always this common thread. But um, 
yeah, it's always kind of a surprise what people are going to really resonate with and you take that feedback and it's really encouraging and can push more things to happen with that world. Like we have five different mushroom related things that we make now, I think, and some of them are just, you know, merch, like a water bottle or whatever, but uh, yeah, it's like the, the energy that you get from all of the people who are excited about it and what they want to share with you when it really connects with them. I mean, I have people on Instagram every day sending me pictures of mushrooms that they find in their yard, in the woods. Just a, <laughs> They're all their mushroom costumes from Halloween, and like that makes me so happy and excited to be like, oh, we're, like, we're sharing something. It's cool. It's, it's fun. Like, we get to engage, and that's like the magic of the internet, right? And like the connectivity that we have, which is also very mushroomy because they connect so many things. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's just really exciting. I love that exchange. Okay, so I said that I was going to see if anyone here had a question about to ask. <laughs> I have a very simple, like, warming up question. Is your jacket anything? <laughs> okay, <laughs> our jacket <laughs> uh, is from a brand called Sunday School, and they're a Korean-American weed company. They make clothes and really fun fashion, and they have a cannabis brand in California, so you can also buy their stuff here. <laughs> Uh, so ironically, this is called the broccoli jacket because yeah. it's like sort of a trippy broccoli, um, not a collaboration, but <laughs> I did have to yeah. have one. <laughs> yeah, they're they're really great. They're great people. Very cozy. This is a three-part question. Oh, oh everybody is angry. The first part is that you'll have to answer right there. I'll just give you the questions first. Now, the first part is that do you have any mechanism for feedback? Number one. Number two, when you get the feedback, what do you do with it? And number three, do you change something in your magazines secondary to the feedback you receive? Good question. That's a great question. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, there's some, I think it's a small magazine in terms of like the market feedback um, it can feel, like I was saying, it can feel sort of removed. Like there were a lot of things that we've tried over the years to like increase sales. Um, we, for a long time, um, we, and this was sort of during the newsstand era, we would have a standard uh, masthead, like the, when you put the magazine name, because we wanted people to be able to recognize it on the newsstand. And to come back to it, that had no, that didn't affect our sales. Um, so I think, you know, so we just stopped doing that because it felt like it's less interesting. Um, so I think the, all these enterprises, you're always looking for some sort of feedback because I think, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years and I all, always feel like on the edge it could end anytime. Like it always feels year to year and it just keeps going and going. Um, so I think you're always really sensitive to trying to figure out how do I support this thing? Um, and I, I, I also think like what's so, in, you have to have that sort of love of doing it um, and choose the right collaborators and people who love it as much and are just trying to think all the time about like how do we continue to give this thing life? And so, and I think also having sort of all of us by the economy, like the sort of economies of our, uh, of our businesses are small. And so you're gonna have uh, just a couple of people, so you can really change what you're doing uh, pretty quickly. But I think that I think all of us, you're just you're sort of always just sort of fighting to survive, 
And so if you're not open to changing and feedback, um, I, I wouldn't think you're gonna make it. And it's also what makes the whole thing sort of more interesting too. I feel like what's so interesting for us is like it'd be a less interesting magazine if we had all the resources in the world. Like I feel like it would have lost interest in a long time ago. Like it's trying to figure out like how do we make something, people come up with us with like crazy ideas. Um, like so I mentioned, uh, we met with an artist the other day um, and his idea is that he wants to handwrite the magazine. And so then we're sitting there like, gosh, like how does that work? But we have never, and I don't know if it's gonna happen, so. <laughs> but we never, but then you just start Good to think luck. like, how could we make that, how can we make that happen? Um, and that's sort of a part of our flexibility. Um, yeah, I think for, for Gross Mag in particular, um, social media is definitely a way, like we interact with a lot of people, you know, via comments or DMs, um, you know, there's a lot of, because it's an art magazine and um, I like to think it's a good one, uh, there's a lot of people that like to submit as well. And so that was a, a, one of the main reasons why um, we started the second title, Relish Magazine, was it was because we released the first issue of Gross and it was great, we got a lot of great feedback, people were stoked on it, you know, sold a bunch and and was very happy with the whole, the whole thing, um, you know, just motivated to continue going. And right after we, re we released the first one, we started getting a ton of submissions of artists and people that were like, hey, love your magazine, like check out my art, you know, here's my portfolio, check this out, check that out. And I was like, ah, like getting a ton of stuff and I wasn't really prepared for that. Um, it, and it, it became like, I started feeling kind of like, kind of, kind of bad about it because I was getting like a lot of submissions of all kinds, like some really refined, beautiful portfolios, and some people are just like, check this out, I just drew this on some college ruled paper, I'm like, woohoo. But you know, it's, it's like, to a certain degree, that's not what this magazine was set up for, was to be a submission-driven magazine. Um, so what we did, you know, had a long think about it, because I didn't really, I wanted to be a platform for supporting and empowering artists, right? So instead of having like a section where it's like a submission section at the back or, you know, we started a second title that is a submission driven magazine and it act and it's like, okay, well, if we have submissions, it's gonna be an overwhelming majority from our community, you know, like from San Francisco where we were living at the time and, or from the Bay Area or whatever, from California. And it would be kind of like skewed, kind of biased and then it would start to be pigeonholed as like a West Coast or a Bay Area, you know, art mag and so, with that in mind, the model for Relish is a traveling submission-driven art program where we activate specific cities at a time. So the first one was the test, the tester, and we did San Francisco, and it was amazing. We had like, I don't know, like 800 submissions, and we had a big art show with the, you know, of all the, all the people that were selected to be in the magazine. They got their own spread and and original artwork. They were invited to bring original artwork. And we displayed it in a huge pop-up art show that had like 67 artworks in the American Bookbinders Museum here in Soma. And it was amazing. Huge energy, massive, like we had capacity. I was like having to like talk down and distract the fire marshal from like shutting us down. It was like this amazing event. Um, the second one we did was LA. It was even bigger. We took over two galleries. Third one we did Seattle. So like that was, in instead of changing this thing, because I didn't want it to then you know, turn into something that it, the, the, it wouldn't align with the original vision. Um, yeah, the feedback was, you know, got all this feedback and changed, 
created a new title to support it, to do what this one couldn't do, but then they kind of both complement each other. Okay. I don't have anything to add. All the same stuff. Well, Annie means she doesn't listen to anything. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that. I love the same lines. Since you are a printed product, how much would it take out of your budget to print an extra four lines in the back cover? We, we can talk outside. <laughs> How much you got? So, 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 so actually, you could have those lines, and that could be like a, like a door that could be open for people that would be interested, and uh, not in submissions, but in giving opinions and points of view. That would cost you a cent, and you get perhaps a, a lot of uh, very valuable information. Perhaps. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I really love about Gross is that you have a mix between all different types of artists, visual artists, chefs, to musicians, to fine artists. Um, and the cool thing with the stickers is that you give these sometimes really big contemporary fine artists the opportunity to have a sticker where they normally wouldn't have a sticker. Um, so my question is, has there ever been one of those artists that has been salty that they didn't get a sticker? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can't give everyone a sticker, you know? And it's like, it's kind of just how it goes. Like, um, essentially, the, the first issue was we did 20 stickers, and it was far too much. Um, it was also like, you know, working with that printer to help me figure out how we were going to do this. like. Just so you know, all of the stickers that are placed in the magazines are hand placed by a, a team of Canadian grandmas. Um, <laughs> they're, they, they, they're paid very well, okay? <laughs> they have water breaks and all the stuff, like whatever. Um, they, uh, they, you know, it, it's all, it's like, a, it's a very, like, I couldn't find a way to have it be automated or whatever, and so this is the way we ended up doing it, but like, to, to make it efficient, cost effective, but also like instead of just like splurging a bunch of stickers and everyone gets a sticker, it's like to make it kind of selective. Um, and it, there is no real rhyme or reason to specifically who gets one versus who doesn't get one. It's more so when when we're creating the content um, or or the artists submit artworks to be published and printed. Uh, there's some artworks that just stick out. It's like this would be a really cool sticker, and that's kind of just how it happens. And there have been some artists who are like. Oh, I didn't get a sticker. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I was wondering how the pandemic has affected content production, anything along those lines. Or maybe it had no effect and it was just um, I think for magazines like ours, like the the supply chain disruptions were I mean, it's, it's incredibly challenging. Um, and the, you know, like we had situations, we, have, we work with a small press in Santa Cruz, and it's like, you know, half we're supposed to be going on press and half the people are out with COVID. And it, it, I think it, magazines like our, or ours, I think, worked because like you're just so inherently flexible. Like you've had to be all the time. Um, and so I think we, you know, we rolled with a lot of changes, um, but it felt sort of natural in a way. Um, and we do actually, and we, so, and, and I, and the, and the, the, the pandemic stories have started to come in, which I sort of, which was interesting, like I, after 9-11, we never really got 9-11 stories. 
but we're starting to get a lot of um, a lot of, of COVID and pandemic stories. Um, I, I saw that there was a lot of, I mean, myself included, like during, during like, you know, 2020 and like overall shutdowns and, you know, forced isolations or whatever. Uh, there was a lot of people, like I said, including myself that I, I took the time to just do my own projects, you know, stuff that I've been thinking about doing that I hadn't had time for, I've been kept putting off. And so there was a, a quite a bit of like a lot of artists that I, I worked with and have worked with. I saw them come out with like new bodies of work that was either a, a step away or a step further that they had been doing and they had the time. Um, you know, a lot of artists are kind of, the joke was like, they're already like, self-isolating all the time they're stuck <laughs> in their studios and they're kind of like you know weirdos in there and like this they had more time and flexibility to do that so in terms of artwork like there was a lot of it in terms of content of course like coordinating a photo shoot or interview in person was a little bit tougher we, we still did some um you know more distance and whatever and and uh but again i think back to what uh what he was saying is like the flexibility is is really incredible when you um, have this this platform that essentially you can it, it's made it has that kind of like built into it the pliability of like whether it's a print schedule or the, like the publishing schedule or like what goes into it like you can kind of change ad hoc and on the fly yeah I think a lot of the like corporate jobs for a lot of artists dried up like instantly so any opportunity to be paid for work like while they're making, they're, you know, most artists are used to being able to do that because that's how you do the stuff you really care about. You do it on your own with your friends. Um, so I think magazine, like indie mags and any kind of indie level content became like a lifeline. And even just to be able to like have those creative interactions from a distance was really nice. I mean, we're remote anyway, but um, yeah, there was a different energy to it for sure. But I think a lot of special things happened creatively. There's also a, a bunch of independent magazines that came out, so partly because people have been like wanting to do this thing for ages and suddenly had time, but also like you all had like the stimulus checks over here, <laughs> and seriously, like people were just like, oh, <laughs> I just got a thousand dollars, I'm gonna print a really small run of a magazine. Actually, I wanted to know where you found your readership outside of social media, like subscriptions, and to compensate the ad base that might be missing during definitely the pandemic or? I mean, I think for us, like our, it, it really has been a lot of internet stuff and word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Like whenever I look at my Google Analytics, it's just like direct is number one, which means they're just typing it in, which is not useful for me because I don't know how they're finding out. <laughs> but we, we were lucky enough to have existed for a couple years before the pandemic. So we had had events and had a lot of nice moments to connect with people. So we kind of got to like ride on that for a little bit, but I've absolutely been feeling that like, if we don't start seeing people again as the, as the entity of the magazine and other things we're making, like we'll lose all of those people and we'll, we'll lose that connection that we had because it's like, you can only do that for so long, like have that space. So um, I'm really, really happy to be doing this today. <laughs> it's really nice to be at an event and it's great. I'm looking forward to more. Likewise. Yeah, this has been a really great event. Thank you all for coming, seriously. Was that the end? Oh. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Uh, I think maybe Victor wants to go. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> did, are, are there any questions left before we go? I'm going to zone for a friend. You can go if you want. I'm <laughs> <laughs> wondering about the relationship between the design and the stories. If they, if they relate to one another, if you're picking stories based on who you know is going to design the issue, or you're, I'm not sure how that works. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's really up to the artist. Um, so a lot of times, uh, I mean, even with as many submissions as we get, like finding stuff that we want to publish is really, really hard. Um, and so, you know, as example, we're reading for our, our winter issue right now, and I should have a lineup in the next couple of weeks, and I have like one story that I acquired a while ago. It's the third part of a novella by Yi Young Lee. Um, so, so the the design and the and the um, and this the editorial are happening concurrently, but at least you know what we'll do is um, provide like synopses and, and original text to the to the artist, and people have approached it different ways. Like I mean, as examples, like um, we'd work. David Byrne had designed an issue, and he wanted photographs that like weren't literal connections, but were sort of like there was some f sort of shared feeling or like a mood and it really does work that way. Um, Kate LeBond's issue, um, we were sort of, there were some some images that would really work with certain stories and um, she like, and so I'm thinking like, oh, this is a real, this one, if, would, this image would feel really good with this story. And she's like, that's exactly why I don't want it with that one and I want like, that story in the that image in the issue, but not next to the story. So this feeling of like there are these sorts of relationships, but they're not so direct. Um, which, if she explained the the idea to you, would be more fascinating than I can right now. But it's that's part of the thing of working with these artists. It's like so interesting to think, see how they approach their work. Um, Sylvia Plahi had designed an issue. She's a really fantastic photographer, and she'd been like the photographer at the Village Voice in the '70s and. Um, coming from more of a journalistic background, she was really, like, it was hard for her not to think of, like, work that would document an actual story. I mean, she was really coming from, like, um, that journalistic background. So, um, and then some things kind of work on their own, like, uh, uh, like Nick Cave's uh, work is just sort of its own narrative through the story, I mean, through the issue. So it's really up to the artists and what they want to do. That thing you're talking about, I don't always follow the rule, but it's like the idea, or you should at least consider it when you're choosing what to put together, is like, should I show and tell? Or like, right. just show, or just tell, and let the other one be kind of a fun uh, wild card moment. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna say one more question before we finish up. Unless there are no questions. Don't be shy. <laughs> I have a question about risk, and have you ever published something where you caught a lot of flack for it or kind of stirred up trouble? I think for, I can only speak for myself of course, but uh, with, with Gross Magazine, there's sometimes when we're publishing um, photos, like there's, there's stuff where like, anytime we're publishing something that's not ours, of course it's like always credited, right? Um, and there's, there's sometimes where like, there was a photo that was supplied by this artist and it was a mural and you know I'm like great here's it was supplied great this is part of your thing like this is your photo turns out like it was a photo that 
was missing a photo credit to the person who took the photo of the mural. And this, you know, sometimes there's like, that in, in itself is like a, it was like an accident, right? Versus like, oh, I'm gonna publish this and see and stir up the pot. But it, there's always a risk anytime you're putting something into print because of like the, the finality of it. And, um, you know, Anya and I were talking earlier about like just the feeling of when you like submit like to the printer. It's like, here's like the final version. And it's like, it's going to print. It's like, oh my God, I don't yeah. know. Three months later, you find out what you did wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like, it's just a nail biter for way too long. And, and that's the thing. It's like, there's always, there's, there's real risk. You know, like, whether it's a typo, whether it's a missing a credit, whether there's a, a miscommunication and the artist, you know, like, didn't, like, want something to be said in a certain way or, or whether, like, you know, not necessarily, like, if you're printing something that's like gonna be uh, um, controversial, because I mean, with with art, it's like it it should be evoking some type of feeling. But if you know, I don't know. I think there's always innate risk when you're sending anything to print, especially like and then putting it out there for other people to like digest, with, and you don't have control of the context in which they're digesting it. Um, but that's the thing that makes you work so hard, right? I mean, if, like you 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 work way harder to send something to print because you know that once it's there that's it it's it's done yeah and i think that's another part that really like we've been talking about like you know sometimes we, it seems like we make the work harder for ourselves but uh one thing i've really learned throughout this process it's it's a grind it's grueling like long hours and late nights and all of these things and you know it's expensive anytime you're sending something to print it's expensive and whether you're like f uh, you know fully financed or not or you're just doing it yourself like this has been Something like our first issue, we did a you know a Kickstarter, and it was like we raised some money. It was great, but it's also like to keep the thing going in the way that the vision like that we had is, it's it's tough, and so there's always like you gotta be nimble and how you can make it happen, right? Um, yeah, it's the the part of like I don't know, I can get I can get lost in that for a long time. That's a that's a very interesting question. Sorry. Uh, I was just gonna say that you know uh, part of with our magazine, um, yeah, you're kind of, you get to do this once, and you can't, you can't fix it once it's printed. And so there's like this obsessive need, for me at least, to get everything right. And I think in part also it's because um, with the stories you want, you know, like I feel like the stories that I love most are the ones that you, you forget you're reading and it starts to, you enter this sort of fugue state where it's sort of happening around you. Um, and any sort of mistake that reminds you of like that imposition of the page between you and the narrative, I think breaks that sort of spell. And so we get really um, detailed about those things. And then I think also with the design component, like we go to an artist and say like, you know, would you design this issue? And in part of that, it's like, we're willing to go kind of wherever you want to go with this. Um, and we'll certainly, um, you know, some of them you know what, a lot of them you know what you're sort of getting into. So like when Ryan McGinley's designing an issue, like there's gonna be a lot of full frontal nudity. And like um, with, uh, I do remember one of our favorite, one of my favorite sort of like little mementos that was up in the office um, when Marilyn Minter designed an issue. And so she'll do sort of like really sort of high gloss photos of like really intimate body, like photographs of people sweating and different things. and. Um, so she designed the issue and she'd sent us this note afterward about like this totally captured what I wanted and this was this totally fulfilling project and it's 
so beautiful. And then we'd also gotten a letter within a couple of days of that, both sent through the mail, which I respected, on like cardstock. So the one from Maryland and one from this woman who'd read the magazine and was like, this, this is like the, like calling it pornography. And she'd said like on page, I tried to hang on and on page 34, I had to put it down and vomit. <laughs> and so we framed those two cards next to each other. Um, but, yeah, well, you know, so you'll get these emails occasionally about, but I also feel like at least with, you know, hopefully your audience, um, gets to know, or they're coming to look for you. So I think there's like a lot of agency and sort of concession in a way when magazines, when people find magazines like this. All right, okay. Um, so I'm just gonna say thanks again to uh, Doug for having us in this lovely house that they've <laughs> put here. <laughs> Thanks so much to, uh, to Michael and to Victor and to Anya for coming and talking to us about what they do. And thanks to all of you for coming and sharing it and being part of it. We have got some drinks and some food now, so I hope you're going to stick around. If you haven't seen the magazines already, make sure you come take a look, buy from the people. Um, and... I don't know, maybe I'll be back in San Francisco another time. Yeah, and if I could say one other thing, everybody should, I'm sure you guys all know about Stack, but check out Stack. I mean, Stack, but honestly, like, I do feel like Steve is doing, has turned me on to so many fascinating magazines that I had no idea existed, and I've been doing this for a long time. And I think also, for a lot of magazines where you're reaching this sort of small audience, that Steve will introduce you to an audience all over the world that never would have otherwise found you. You've been such a great advocate for small magazines and publications. So thanks for all you doing. Thanks very much for listening all the way through to the end. I think you can probably hear that we all had a very lovely time speaking on the panel. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to it just as much. I'd like to say thanks again to Hannah and Ben and everyone else at Landscape who helped to make the event happen. And of course, thanks to Anya, Victor and Michael for giving up their weekends and spending it talking about their magazines. As I record this, we're just over a month out from Christmas, which means it's prime time for me talking Stack Up as a gift. And guess what? It really does make for a fantastic present. Uh, if you go to stackmagazines.com forward slash Christmas, you'll see all of our offers uh, and you can choose whether you want to gift a subscription for three, six or 12 months. And starting in January, we'll send somebody you know our brilliant magazine surprises. And if you use the code podcast, you'll save 10% off any of those plans just for people who listen right through to this end bit. Now, as I said at the start, I don't have any plans for more episodes of the podcast at the moment, but I will keep popping up with occasional things like this as and when the opportunities arise. So I hope I'll be able to drop something into your feed at some point in the next few months.